Good morning, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to look with you now at that passage that uh, Aaron just read for us, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 to chapter 2, verse 11. Can I encourage you to have a Bible open and uh, we'll read through it again, think about what it means and how it applies to us. Let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage uh, in the Bible. As tricky as it might be uh, as we first look at it, we pray that you help us to unravel it, understand it, and then think hard about uh, the important things that it has to teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Have you ever been in a situation like this? Someone you know is a Christian. You know a Christian. It's someone you care about. Uh, maybe a friend, maybe a family member, maybe one of your children. There's, there's a Christian that you know, and they are doing something that you know is bad for them. Bad for them as a Christian. Something that is leading them away from Jesus. Now, it could be lots of different things. Maybe they're being like the thorny soil in Jesus' parable. You know, the thorny soil people get caught up in the stuff of this life. Maybe. Uh, you're dealing with a, a teenager who just spends their whole time studying for the HSC and is not coming to church or youth group or anything like that. Or uh, a friend of yours has got stuck into their career and they're totally focused on their career and maybe paying off the mortgage or something and church has gone out the window. And, or, or maybe they're so caught up with family, young children, new babies, something like that. Everything else is put aside. Maybe it's a hobby that they've taken up. Whatever it is, they're not reading the Bible, they're not praying, they're not meeting with God's people. You can see it happening. You can see the impending disaster. You can see them drifting away. What do you say? Or maybe, um, maybe it's some unwise thing that this person's doing. Maybe they're starting a relationship with a non-Christian. Uh, you know it's the worst thing they could do. As a Christian, it'll lead them astray almost surely. It means if they get married, their kids are not going to end up Christians. You know that this is a decision they're going to regret eternally. What do you say? Or maybe it's some sin that they're getting caught up in. Perhaps your friend is is having an affair or they're cheating their taxes or they're living a, a double life, putting on a face that everybody thinks they're this way, but in fact they're doing something completely different. You, you can... You can see them falling into this sin. You can see the train wreck coming. What do you say? Or maybe the person's being tricked by some false teaching. They're being tempted by some cult. They're talking to the Jehovah's Witnesses and visiting with them or getting trapped by Eastern Lightning or something like that. You know they're in danger. What do you do? How do you react When someone is acting in a way that you know is leading them away from Jesus. Do you understand the question? I'm going to get you to talk about it for a couple of minutes. Okay, Maybe you can talk about your own experience. Have you had a situation like this? How did you handle it? Did you talk about it or did you stay silent? I know that uh, there are lots of different cultures among us. And uh, some culture, Caucasian culture for example, is very reticent. They don't say anything. There are some Asian cultures like that, but there are some Asian cultures where they stick their nose into everything as well, aren't they? So what's your experience? Do do you talk? Do you stay silent? If you talk, what do you say? Or if that's too personal to talk about your own experience or you've not experienced it, maybe you've seen somebody else do it or you've seen it happen in a church. What happened when this person was drifting away? Did people say something? Did they say nothing? Did they handle the situation well? Did they handle the situation badly? You understand the kind of thing we're going to talk about? 
So break up into groups, three, four, five people. Make sure nobody's sitting by themselves with no one to talk to them. I'll give you two or three minutes and we'll just chat about this issue. What do you do when you see someone heading in a bad direction as a Christian? Okay, a couple of minutes. It's an interesting thing to talk about, isn't it? Because you, you do see quite different responses, not just cross-culturally, but you do see quite different responses in terms of personality as well, don't you? Many people will just stay silent, say nothing. Some people will stick their nose in and be judgmental and censorious. It's not that often that you see it done well. So I think this passage in 2 Corinthians can be really helpful to us. Now, the thing about this passage in 2 Corinthians, though, you first read it, and it's a bit difficult to know what's going on. It's a little bit like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. You're not sure what the other person is saying. And so we hear what Paul is saying here, but we don't hear the other side. So let me try to reconstruct what was happening behind the scenes. Let me try to reconstruct the situation that Paul is speaking to here. Last week, do you remember, we saw that Paul promised the Corinthians that he would visit them twice. Remember, he was going to visit them on the way to Macedonia and then visit them again on the way back from Macedonia so that it help him on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, but when Paul visited Corinth the first time, we find out today, things went very badly. There was a particular man in the church, a man who was publicly and shamelessly involved in some kind of sin. It's possible that this is the man Paul talks about in his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a man who was openly having sex with his stepmother. Paul rebuked the man when he visited the first time and he called on the church to exercise discipline. He called on the church to say to the man, this behaviour is not acceptable and we can't let you just keep hanging around with us if you're going to be bringing your stepmother that you're sleeping with every week. You just can't go on like this. But it seems this man was rich. This man was influential. He might have been an employer of some of the people in the church. They might have worked for him or something like that. And so the church, when they were called on to discipline the man, they wimped out. They didn't back Paul. They backed the man who was involved in this scandalous sin. And meanwhile, the man took the opportunity to criticise Paul. He said, just ignore the guy. Just ignore Paul. He's got no authority to tell us what to do. And he doesn't understand the gospel. He doesn't understand the freedom that the gospel brings. Jesus died for us to forgive us for our sin. Now we can do what we want. That, that kind of thing. Things ended badly on Paul's first visit. The man didn't repent. The church didn't back Paul. And Paul's authority and even Paul's gospel was being questioned. Then the time came when Paul said he would visit again. And he had to decide what to do. He could visit again like he planned to. But that could very easily go pear-shaped. He'd have to come down hard on the man. And he'd have to come down, on hard on, uh, come down hard on the church as well. He would have to come in and impose his apostolic authority and force them to comply for the sake of the gospel. He'd have to force them to comply. But Paul doesn't think that's the best way forward. He knows it'll create division in the church. And he also thinks... It wouldn't be good for the church because they really need to not make the decision because he comes and forces them. They need to make the decision because they've understood themselves that this is the right thing to do. They need to understand for themselves. Jesus saves us from sin, not for sin. They need to understand for themselves that Jesus, that the Jesus they put their faith in is not just their saviour but their Lord. 
the, the best thing for the church would be to, to, to understand the gospel better and come to the right decision themselves out of their own faith in Jesus rather than having Paul force them to make the right decision. So, instead of visiting, what Paul did, he wrote a letter to the church. Now, we, we probably don't have this letter anymore. I don't think it's 1 Corinthians. I think this is a different letter. I don't think we have it anymore. But it's pretty obvious what would have been in this letter. Paul would have explained the gospel again. The gospel is that Jesus died so that we can be free from sin. We need to turn away from sin and obey Jesus as Lord. And so you cannot tolerate this kind of behaviour. You need to discipline the man. He sent him a letter. But the good news we now find out today in this passage in 2 Corinthians, the good news is this. They did it. The church did what Paul said in his letter. But now, as we saw last week, there are these false teachers in the church, super apostles. We're going to run into them. We'll deal with them a lot in chapters 11, 12, 13. There are these apostles calling themselves in the church, and uh, they're false teachers, and they're also trying to discredit Paul. They're saying, you, you can't trust Paul. And the fact that Paul said he would visit you twice but didn't visit is proof that he can't be trusted. It's proof you cannot trust Paul. We saw Paul deal with that last week, didn't he? Remember the two things that he said in response to the, to the challenges? First thing he said was, my conscience is clear. I've tried to act towards you with honesty, with sincerity. My travel plans were made with due consideration, trying to do the right thing for you. I've I, I got nothing to hide. I got, I've acted with integrity, Paul says. And then the second thing, remember from last week, Paul says, even if I wasn't able to keep my promises, God is not like me. God always keeps his promises in Jesus. And so even if I wasn't able to do what I said, you can trust God to always do what he says. You need to rely on Jesus. Remember that from last week? All right. Well, now, uh, with all that background in mind, it brings us to our, our section for today. So Paul starts off by explaining why he didn't return, why he didn't come back for a visit, and why he wrote a letter instead. And he says it was to spare them to spare them from an unpleasant visit, spare them from that pain. But, but, but more than that, he says, it's because we don't want to lord it over your faith. Instead, we want to work with you for your joy. He, he doesn't want to force them to do the right thing, come with a visit and you know, bang them on the head or something like that. No, no. In a letter... They would have the, he would have the opportunity to explain himself very carefully and they would have the opportunity to sit down, think it through, work out what is the right implication of the gospel, what should we do, so that, they, uh, so, so, so that it, it's by faith that they stand firm and so the best thing for them, Paul thinks, is that they work it out from their faith themselves. That's why he writes a letter instead of visits. Yeah, let's have a look. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Why? Not, not that we lord it over your faith, but we want to work with you for your joy, because it's by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. Paul also says it just would have been awful 
to have to come and make them do what he told them. He'd much rather have a good relationship with the Corinthian church. He's got no pleasure in conflict. He's got no pleasure in grieving people, no pleasure in forcing people to do the right thing. Verse 2, for if I grieve you, who's left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? He talks more about why he wrote his letter to them. He says, I wrote to you because I love you. I love you. I really hope that you would repent, that you'd do the right thing for the right reason. I really hoped you'd be obedient so that when I ultimately do come to visit, it's not going to be a sad, painful visit. It'll be a happy visit. Verse 3, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. All right, so we've got so far, Paul didn't visit. He wrote a letter instead. Why? Out of love for the Corinthians, so they'd do the right thing for the right reason, not just because he forced them, and so that when he did come to visit them, he could do so with joy. And then the good news is this. In response to Paul's letter, the church did what he asked. They had a meeting, and the majority of them agreed, yeah, we've got to do something about this guy. We really need to discipline this man. And so they brought him before them, they said... This is just unacceptable behaviour. We agree with Paul's understanding of the gospel. It doesn't give you freedom to sin. It gives you freedom to serve Jesus as your king. The church did what Paul asked in his letter. And then the even better news is this. The man repented. He acknowledged that he was doing the wrong thing. He stopped what he was doing. said, I'm really sorry. It's clear that I've, I've done the wrong thing and I won't do it again. And so now, Paul says... It's time to forgive him. It's time to comfort him. It's time to encourage him as a Christian. It's time to welcome him back into fellowship. Paul says, I'm so pleased you did what I said in my letter. He was causing grief. He was causing damage. You had to deal with it. You needed to discipline. But now that time is past. You've dealt with the matter appropriately. Now it's time to forgive. He says, for whatever he did to me, I forgive him. And you need to forgive him as well. Verse 5. If anyone has caused grief... He's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he'll not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything, which they did. And when you forgive, I also forgive. And what I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ. See, Paul calls on the church to forgive the man now that he's been disciplined, now that he's repented. And he finishes by giving one very important reason why they need to forgive. It's not just for the good of the man that he doesn't despair. It's also vital for the church itself. It is vital for the church that they forgive. It's for their sake. Paul says, Paul puts it this way, he says, he says, it's so that Satan won't outwit us. If you think about it, it's clear. If the church refuses to forgive those who repent, well, that's a profound failure to understand the gospel, isn't it? That's a church that thinks they're all good people and who won't accept bad people among them. But that's not, that's not the true church, is it? 
As Christians, we know we are all sinners. As Christians, we are all forgiven entirely by the grace of Jesus. We're not the good people. We're the bad people forgiven by Jesus, now in his strength trying to turn away from sin. If, if a church were to refuse to forgive a repentant sinner, there would be profound danger of self-righteousness, in profound danger of causing divisions and splits. And, you know, a church like that would even be putting their own forgiveness in jeopardy. What did Jesus say? If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father in heaven will not forgive you your sins. Paul puts it this way. If these Corinthians refuse to forgive the repentant sinner, they'll play right into the hands of Satan. Still in verse 10. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. What I've forgiven, I've forgiven in the sake of Christ. For your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. I think it's really neat the way Paul talks about Satan outwitting us there because you can see from this passage the, the two wrong directions that Satan will use to, to wreck people's faith and wreck a church. He, he will, Satan loves it when we stay silent, when we just let people go on in sin unchallenged, unquestioned. That, that plays right into Satan's hands. But then on the other hand, Satan loves it when a church gets all self-righteous and censorious and won't forgive and welcome repentant sinners. That plays into Satan's hands as well because people become self-righteous, relying on themselves instead of God. So either way, Satan's tricky, isn't he? So they need to walk this middle line. All right. right, That's as far as we're going today. Can you see what's here then in this passage? Uh, Paul is explaining to the Corinthians still why he wrote them a letter instead of visiting them. It's because he thought after the last painful visit, a letter would be a better way of helping them. He could clearly explain what he wanted to say. He could help them to do the right thing for the right reason. So they, because they're convinced from the gospel message itself rather than being forced to comply. Good news, the church did what he wrote in his letter. They punished the offender. Even better news, the offender turned away from his sin. And so now, Paul says in this letter, time to forgive. Paul says, I forgive, you need to do the same. Yeah, it falls out okay, I think, if you understand the background, doesn't it? It's a bit tricky when you first look at it, but I think it falls out okay. All right. Now, let's think about applying this passage to ourselves then. To do that, I want us to come back to the issue we thought about at the beginning. How do we react when someone is doing something that we know is leading them away from Jesus? How do we respond? What do we do? I reckon there are four really helpful ideas here in this passage. For us, four helpful ideas when someone is doing something that is leading them away from Jesus. First point is this. We should say something. We should say something. In our culture, at least in Western culture, and I know in some Asian cultures but not all, um, in in, in our culture, by, by far the easiest thing to do is just to ignore what's happened. To, to let people go on in their sin or their foolishness or their heresy. Very few of us like conflict. It's really uncomfortable. Uh, very few of us feel qualified to give other people advice. And most of us are all too aware of our own sin and failings. And, and so we say nothing. But friends, it's not really good enough, is it? It's not, it's not loving. It's... Ultimately, it's selfish. We're putting our own comfort before the good of the other person. 
In this passage, we see Paul being brave. We see him lovingly addressing issues with the man and with the church. And Paul is calling on the church to follow his example, to be brave, to, to lovingly address the issue that, they, that they're facing. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it could all go pear-shaped. Yes, it requires wisdom. Yes, we're sinners. But, but out of love for people, out of concern for their eternal well-being, to work with each other for our joy, he speaks up, and so should they. So let's imagine a situation. I'm going to keep it pretty tame. Let's imagine... You're talking to a friend. This friend has not been to church for weeks, perhaps months, because they've taken up golf on Sundays instead. The temptation is to say nothing, isn't it? If you even realise they haven't been at church for weeks. The temptation is to say, oh, you run into them in the shops, and the temptation is to just ask them about their handicap or chat about what what club they like to use to get out of a bunker or something like that. But friends, think about what's going on. Their priorities are all wrong. They're disobeying God's clear instruction. Do not forsake meeting together, says God. And they're in danger, aren't they? They're in danger of drifting away and taking their family away with them if they're a part of a family. Is it really right for you, for the sake of your own comfort, because you don't want to get out of your comfort zone, to to just leave that unquestioned, to just let the person drift away? And that's not right, friends. That's not right. We need to speak up. That's point number one. Point number one, say something. Say something. Second point is this. Second point is this. Our, Our response should be proportional. There are some instances of public sin where an eldership or or even a whole church needs to get involved. That's the sort of situation that Paul faced with that man who was in Corinth. His his sin was impacting the whole church. It was making people misunderstand the gospel. And and so the whole church needed to deal with it. Everyone needed to see what was going on. Um, What kind of situation? I mean, God forbid, if I were to have an affair, for example, that would impact the church, and it would need to be dealt with at that kind of level. The whole church would need to know, the whole church would need to deal with it, and I'd need to be lined up and shot or something like that. Right. Um, come on, or do it before you even had a chance. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, seriously, I remember one time I was, I was looking after another church, and um, the minister, who was my employee, the minister was caught up in a very serious and very scandalous sin, uh, he was a much-loved minister, an excellent minister in many ways, but with a very serious uh, character flaw. Um, and because of this serious scandalous sin, I had to remove him from his position. And I had to call a, a congregational meeting to help tell the whole church about it. I tell you what, that was the, one of the worst days of my entire quarter of a century of ministry. I've never, seen, I've never seen so many people cry all at once as I've said something, as I told them about what had happened with their minister. That was a terrible day. But, but that's not most sin is it? Most sin is not public like that. Most sin isn't endangering a whole church. So we need to be proportionate. You need to keep it as contained as possible. As a general rule, just deal with the person themselves in private. Uh, If that's not appropriate or if it's not working, bring one person along, bring another person along, ask your Bible study leader to help or something. Uh, A good rule is 
The extent of influence of the sin is the extent that it needs to be dealt with. If people are impacted by it, they should, they should know what's going on. But no more. No more. Keep your response proportionate. So imagine, uh, let's um, imagine again our, our Sunday golf playing friend. How do we deal with the situation? Um, I don't think we ask Warren to put it into the weekly email. Okay? <laughs> Notice. Gol- golf playing pagan or something like that. All right? Um, I, I don't think we need to call on the elders to, to publicly exercise church discipline or something like that. That's something we have had to do a couple of times in my time here, but not this situation. All right, this is not, that's not proportionate. What's needed in this situation? Just a quiet chatter of a cup of coffee, isn't it? Just, just you and your friend. So that's point number two. Remember what point number one was? Say something. Say something. And point number two, keep it proportionate. Keep your response proportionate. Brings us to point number three of our four points. Our third point. Third point, we... We, we talk to each other as fellow forgiven sinners, not as righteous, good people. We, we talk as fellow forgiven sinners. And so we want to work hard to be humble and encouraging and be very quick to offer Jesus forgiveness to people upon their repentance. Don't, we don't want to be wagging our fingers and criticising and condemn, condemning. We don't want to be kind of laughing at people. Or, no, no, as Paul encourages the Corinthians here, They need to be very quick to to want to welcome the person back, very quick to offer Jesus forgiveness upon repentance. That's so important, isn't it? We are a forgiven people. And so we must be a people quick to forgive. We are a saved, a group of saved sinners, not of good people, a group of saved sinners, and so we need to deal with humility. Now, again, I'm not saying that we should be wimpish about it. There will be times when we will need to say, friend, that is foolish. Or friend, that is dangerous. Or friend, that is contrary to what God says. There there are times when we will need to speak up and speak out and be very clear about it. But you get the idea, don't you? We don't want to be self-righteous. We don't want to be judgmental or capricious or supercilious. Be humble, gentle, winsome, quick to assure people of Jesus' forgiveness and welcome. So again... Let's imagine our Sunday golf-playing friend. What are you going to say to them over the cup of coffee? The best approach is probably not something like this. You have forsaken the Lord and his people. You're a lazy, hell-bound pagan. You should be godly like me and go to church every week. And I'm not going to speak to you again because I'm worried that your foul sin will contaminate me. Perhaps not. Perhaps not. Better approach might be something along these kinds of lines. Friend, I feel really uncomfortable about this. I know I'm a sinner myself. I'm only forgiven through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And maybe I've misunderstood what's going on here. Maybe I've misunderstood why I haven't seen you at church for the last few weeks. But but I really value being at church with you. And, And I know other people are really encouraged when you're there. And, and it's good for you to be at church week by week. And it's, it's good for your family to be hearing God's word week by week. I'm missing you. I'm worried about you. I'd love it if you came back to church. And you know what? You can be, sure, you can be assured you would be welcomed back with open arms. Something like that? B- bit better? Okay, what have we got so far? Point number one was say something. Point number two was be proportionate. And point number three, be 
kind of humble, humble, encouraging, offering forgiveness. Sorry, I didn't give you a good, clear thing for that, did I? Humble and forgiving. Fourth and final idea in the passage is this. And this is an idea I hadn't really seen very well until I understood this passage better this week. But the best approach, and Paul's approach, is to help people to work it out for themselves. That's why he wrote a letter rather than visit, wasn't it? Because he didn't want to force the Corinthians to do the right thing. He didn't want to wag his finger and lecture them. He wanted them to understand the gospel in such a way that they could work it out for themselves. So when we see someone drifting away, it might not be best to offer a sermon or a lecture. It might be better, it might be better to ask questions. Just think about our Sunday golfer. What kind of questions would be good questions to ask our Sunday golfing friends? Maybe, um, why do we go to church? Why do you think God would command us to go to church? What's, what's going on there? What's at stake? Why would God command that? Or maybe uh, be asking something like this. Um, does it make any difference to you when you don't go to church? Are you finding life is any different, you know, a few months, weeks down the track? Do you think it makes any difference to your family when you don't go to church? Do you think it makes any difference to the other people at church if you're not there? What influence do you think your priorities are having on your children, if you've got children? Your other people who are looking at you as a Christian. Do you, do you get the idea? We're trying to help the person to work it out for themselves so they do the right thing for the right reason. So what do we got? Point number one was say something. Point number two was be proportionate. Point number three was something about humble and encouraging and forgiving. And point number four, help them to work it out for themselves. I, th- I think these are really helpful ideas, don't you? Really helpful ideas. Okay, friends, uh, it's scary. It's tricky. It's not easy to help people when they're caught up in sin or foolishness or heresy or when they're drifting away, but it's the right thing to do. Isn't it? It's the loving thing to do. So, friends, let's humbly, lovingly help each other to turn from sin and live for Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are forgiven sinners. And we thank you that you've put us into a church where we can help each other to live for the Lord Jesus. So we help us to do this bravely and humbly and faithfully. Keep us from both those errors that Satan wants us to fall into, the error of just letting each other drift away, but also the error of speaking unforgivingly and self-righteously and censoriously. Help us to walk that middle line of humbly and gently loving each other and helping each other to working with each other for our joy so that we live for the Lord Jesus. Give us strength and wisdom to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.